Hallelujah. 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 Let's give the Lord a clap of praise. Luke 15. I'm not preaching. I'll just read the... <laughs> Hallelujah. Luke 15, 11 to 32. The parable of the lost son. Then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hard servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. Hallelujah. I'm going to pray um, the prayer from Ephesians 3, verse 14 to 21. I kneel in prayer to the Father. All beings in heaven and on earth receive their life from him. God is wonderful and glorious. I pray that his spirit will make you become strong followers and that Christ will live in your hearts because of your faith. Stand firm and be deeply rooted in his love. 
I pray that you and all God's people will understand what is called, called wide or long or high or deep. I want you to know all about Christ's love. Although it is too wonderful to be measured, then your lives will be filled with all that God is. I pray that Christ Jesus and the church will forever bring praise to God. His power at work in us can do far more than we dare ask or imagine. Amen. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Pastor Jessica, for the reading of the word and the scripture. And good morning. Uh, good to, good to uh, be with you today on this special occasion of Mother's Day, but also on this special occasion of continuing this series. Uh, I'm going to put, can we put the first slide up there just so that if anyone wasn't here before, they know that we're talking about uh, the story of the prodigal son that we've named for ourselves uh, the parable of the prodigal father. Uh, the story of God's scandalous love. This was not a cultural thing that was going on. This is beyond any human culture. This is beyond any human religion. This is an amazing revelation of God and, and the, uh, who, is, who is Father and the heart of Father God. And it's an amazing, absolutely stunning story. In fact, there's nothing else in human literature that reveals God the way that this story reveals God. As a father who runs to us, who has mercy upon us, who is waiting with his grace to bring us to his place, to restore us to himself, to have complete forgiveness for anything that we've done wrong. A father who's willing to run after a, a son who leaves him, but also a son who stays home with a bad attitude. And, and is you know, going out to both of them and reaching out to them to be in relationship, to bring him to the table. It's an absolutely stunning revelation. But I want us to see something else about it this morning, and that is what a literary masterpiece uh, this passage of Scripture is. When you first read it, it seems kind of simple. It starts out just as simple a statement as you can make. A father had two sons, all right? Not, nothing uncommon about that. A father, that's a very common thing. Couple of boys, that's a very common thing. This is a human experience. But then as you read it, you find out that there's so much of the divine in this human story that Jesus gave to us. And I think even that was intentional on Jesus' point because what he's saying is the divine is not, because of Jesus, because of his, the Father's love, the divine is not a distant experience from us. The divine is not something in the ethereal world. It's not something for us to know exists and not, not really experience it. That the experience we can have with God is, is a right now, right here, heaven, heaven yes, but earthly experience with, with the Son of God, with the Holy Spirit, with Father God. And, and I love how he gives this divine story uh, in, in, in this context of a very human experience but as soon as we see the human experience, we know immediately there's never a human experience we've ever heard like this. We've never heard of a father that treated a son so graciously in the son's leaving and the son's coming back in the older son's stubborn refusal to go into the celebration when his brother returns and celebrate the joy of his own father. All of these things. We, we, we just don't have this in human context. We, our society, our religion, nothing produces anything like this. And yet Jesus comes and gives us this story as a revelation of God, and as we talked about last week, as a revelation of ourselves, really, because we are either one of these two sons by comparison, or we're a combination of the two, or we sometimes are more one than the other. You know, when I was going, uh, I did the exercise that I asked you to do. I took some time alone with God, and I just said, Father, who am I? in relation to these two boys. Am I the younger son? Am I the older son? And I'd like to say that the answer that came back was, hey, you're, you're neither one, you're good to go. You're... But I saw, I, to my surprise really, I saw 
more of the younger son in me than I expected and more of the older son in me than I expected to see. And I just wanted to kind of give you, I don't know if you went through the exercise yourself, but I saw the distance um, between myself and God that I saw in the younger son and that I saw also in the distant son. And in the younger son, the distance was created by just kind of busyness, projects. And, and it's been getting better for me over this last year of, of kind of not going all the time a mile a minute um, you know, from this project to that project related to ministry development, related uh, to care for the, for the building projects that have had to be done, all of those things. But I feel like I'm still on my way back, that I'm kind of like the younger son that hasn't come all the way into the arms of the Father. I feel like there's more of a place of rest for me, more of a place of being in God's presence, of being in prayer without all of the crazy stuff. And so I see that about, and that's where I remember a few weeks ago, Carol talked about the story of being so busy that her head was down and she forgot that she had taken down the stairs that come from the ceiling and ran into that, you know, and fortunately didn't get hurt too badly. But the reality is that's what I recognize about myself. I've just kind of been going, I'm getting a little bit better in that, but I still see uh, uh, too much of that. And I just, I, I, the Lord was really speaking to me that way. I also saw the older son, the one who was not willing to celebrate as much, didn't have as much focus on others uh, than he needed to have, uh, more, more kind of focused on himself. And I didn't see this with people in the house uh, of God, but more people out of the house. I, 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 I'm still sharing the gospel regularly with people that don't know the Lord, but I know that, I, I know that I'm not doing it you know, recently as much as I've done it before on just a more regular basis. So I, I kind of saw a little bit of the older son, a little bit of the younger son in me. And I hope that you're going through that same kind of process. I've heard from a few of you that you were surprised too. Uh, one person said, I, I, the Lord just let me know that there's rebellion in me like the younger son. And I, and I just wanted God to deal with that. Well, the beautiful thing is God doesn't point out things that are wrong about us so that he can sit back and laugh at us, tell us how bad we are. He, he points out these things to us so we can get rid of this stuff that's preventing us from experiencing all the love that he has for us, all of the, all the plans that he has for us. And so we see this beautiful um, uh, uh, experiential encounter with this story in so many different ways. It's supposed to be that way. It's the living, loving word of God that we're seeing. But I also want us to see a little bit of the complexity of this because I believe that this story is a literary masterpiece. And the more that I've studied, I, I just have been so impressed by this story throughout, throughout my whole Christian life, but especially in probably the last three, four years, it's really, really been ministering to me. But then in preparation for this study or this uh, sharing with you, I just went deep into this. I read a lot of different sources, prayed through it, worshiped through it, just got alone with it, all of those things. And, and one of the things that I found from one of the authors um, who's a professor of New Testament in the Middle East, um, he's, he's there uh, uh, in the notes that we handed out last week. And, and, and this is a two-part, so you'll get the notes next week for this part because I want you to just be able to focus on this. But um, in those, I, I have a bibliography in there, and one of them is this Professor Bailey um, that is this New Testament professor. And here's what he said. He said, I believe that, that, that Jesus telling this story is it actually a retelling of the story of Jacob. I'm 55 years old because my dad and mom came to the Lord before I was born. I've been in the church all my life. You think, you think I have a, a, a dad and mom who are pastor, evangelists, missionaries, all of that. You think I've heard this story told before? Never once did I ever hear that it was a retelling of the story of Jacob. But he made a convincing case. He said, Jacob's story is similar to the story that Jesus told in that there was one father and two sons, an older son and a younger son. And the similarity between the two younger sons is that they received the inheritance early and they took off to a distant land with that inheritance. That's what Jacob did. Esau stayed home. Jacob took off. The interesting thing is, and we'll get to where the mother is um, at the end of this teaching series, but just to touch on it a little bit, neither one of them talked much about the mother. One talks nothing about the mother, and there's a beautiful reason behind that, and I'm excited to share with you later on. 
but the other doesn't talk much about the mother at all. She's not a player. In fact, she's kind of undermining what's, what's taking place, and so she's kind of set aside. She comes back into prominence later when some things get sorted out, but for this, it's like kind of shelved a little bit in this story. And so you've got the focus on the father, the focus on the two sons, the, one, the younger son going to a distant land. One son goes to the distant land and gets wildly rich, he just becomes wealthy. The other one starts off wildly rich, wealthy, and then goes and loses it all. So in this one, you have a comparison by contrast. Not necessarily a, there's a similarity, but it's, it's in opposite to each other. But then they return from a distant land, and, uh, and one older brother refuses to meet him. The other older brother comes out to meet him, but with an army of men, 400 armed men, you know. So which one would you rather have? Uh, thank you. Stay home, please, you know. And uh, so we've got a similarity with that. But we have a, a homecoming where, where somebody comes out of their home. In the case of the story of G that Jesus told, it was the father who went out to the edge of the village. In, in the case of the story of Jacob, it was the, it was the brother who went out kind of to the edge of the village. He went out to the place where they could meet together. And so you see these comparisons. And, and Dr. Bailey um, has counted 52 similarities between the story of Jacob and Esau and the story of this younger son and the older son and both of their different fathers. And it's so fascinating to me that you've got this literary genius that is going on here. And, and for me, I might not understand it, but for the people that Jesus is telling this story to, remember, they are Jewish religious leaders. They are Pharisees. They are the scholars of their day, the biblical scholars of their day. Now, we know that many of them made it more about the book, you know, and what they understood about the book, the, 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 the literature of the scriptures, than an actual relationship, and they got way off course, made it more of a man-made religion than a God-given relationship. We, we understand that, but you have to know that when those Pharisees heard Jesus talk about a man who had two sons, they know the story of, of, of Jacob. Jacob became Israel. He's the one that was the founder of their nation, had the 12 sons who became the 12 tribal leaders that became the 12 tribes that became the nation of Israel. This was the formation experience of Israel, was the story of Jacob and Esau. And you know that as they heard this story, they, they were probably thinking, wow, there's something so similar about this story. Father, two sons, one goes to a distant land. Uh, they, give, they take their inheritance early. They come back. There's uh, this kind of welcome from their father eventually. And they're hearing all this, and they're saying, hey, I know what he's doing. He's using a literary device of the rabbis of our day to take a story that we're all familiar with in Scripture, in the Old Testament, and he's reforming that story to create a new reality. And who better to create a new reality than Jesus, the Son of God, the Word of God, who comes to bring the deepest revelation of God that has ever been given before. And so Jesus comes with a simple story, and yet with literary genius behind it, a masterpiece of writing. It seems simple, and then you start to see the layers of complexity, and you realize that to explore this one story of Jesus... We require kind of tunnels. We require kind of mine shafts where we have to go down deep and, you know, kind of dig down into this and say, what's here more? What's here more? I mean, did you think that anyone could preach for nine weeks and now it's 10 weeks because I made this a two-parter? 10 weeks in a row on just this one story? You know what I'm convinced of now? I could do a year. I could do two years, five years. It's the depths of the Word of God, the complexity and yet the simplicity of it. There's no other story ever written that we have such a sublime revelation of the nature of God, of the heart of God for people. And yet at the same time, you just don't have the, the, the beating heart of God, but you've got the great mind of God. You've got this intelligence that's coming forward. No wonder you're so smart. You're created by this genius brain. You wondered how you could read like you do. You wondered how you could figure things out like you do. Why you're so wise, why you're so intelligent, why you're so scholarly, why you're able to get all of those degrees along the way. All that because what created you was a super mind, an ability to be able to think on layers that are beyond anything that we could possibly imagine. Isn't this an awesome thing to look at the beauty of God's word and the beauty of the words of Jesus? Find anything like it. Study all of the different religions. 
Study all the different philosophies. You'll never find anything not only so intelligent and complex, but just so amazingly full of the heart of God for us, the revelation of God. So, for a long time I've been uh, kind of referencing this, this little uh, handout that we gave, and, uh, and we just put a little picture of, of the prodigal son in the arms of his father, and we gave you a list of, of, of the teachings that we would do. And, and, we, and, and if you notice that the one that we, the last week was finding your place in the story, and the one that we're on this week and next, because I'm going to make it a two-parter, I needed to do that once I got even further into it, is, is called the story's unseen brother. Now, there's a guy in our church named Cairo, and I found out that that's not really his name. His name is Matthew. His mom and dad were just here. And I found out his name is Matthew. And so I said, so what's up with the Cairo? And he explained to me that he was in a junior high class or high school class somewhere with the youth. I don't remember. Junior, junior high. And they challenged those young, those young children, junior high age kids, to pick a Greek word that would apply to themselves, that they would adopt for themselves. Because we know that the New Testament was written in Greek and there's so much of the language of Greek um, that, that really communicates so much of the truths of God to us because the word of God is given, at least the New Testament, the Old Testament in Hebrew, and then mixture of Aramaic between the two. But the, uh, uh, he said, pick a Greek word. And he picked kairos. Do you know what the word kairos means? means grace. It's my granddaughter's name. And it's the way I sign almost all my texts and I think all my emails, grace with three exclamation points. Uh, grace comes from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen? And so grace is what it's all about. We live in this grace. And if we don't have grace, we don't live. And, and so you've got this beautiful thing where Cairo... Um, identifies by name with Kairos and somehow they dropped the S and he became Cairo. Well, when I found all this out, ever since then, I've been calling him Kairos. Ever since. I didn't ask his permission. I think I did once go, is that okay? No, I guess I did. I guess I did. I think I did. But if I didn't, I don't feel guilty about it. Um, because that's the name that he picked, right? That was the original name. Kairos. And Kairos left on Friday morning, I think 4 a.m. He had to leave to get to the airport. He left and he said to me when he was talking to me on the phone the night before about the fact that he was going to propose to Sabrina, who is sitting right here. And by the way, I don't know who's going to listen to this podcast. They might not know you, but like whatever, whatever, whatever far and wide podcasts we're listening to is going on right now. Um, they're hearing about uh, people maybe even they've never met before. Congratulations, Sabrina. Congratulations, Kairos. Why did I tell all that? Because Kairos asked me, before I leave, I have to ask you this. Who's the unseen brother? I'm not going to be there for the message Sunday. And I don't want to wait for the podcast. Who's the unseen brother? And I just thought that was really funny. Because if I were Kairos, Kairos is a, is a brainiac. He's, a, he's an attorney with a State Department, all these. He, he just works. You know, he's, he's like a Jessica Saliente mind, like that science. You know, just figuring stuff out. And, 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 and he's, he's probably been like thinking all this time, who's the, who's the unseen brother? Who's the unseen brother in this story? This is another thing I want to share you, the genius of this story. And I want to I share this with you, and I'm so excited to do it. Remember who the teller of this story is? Yeah. It's Jesus. Sometimes in my human experience, I get disconnected from the important facts, okay? That happens in regular relationships. But sometimes it happens to me in the word of God. Sometimes I'm so enamored with the words of Jesus, I forget that Jesus is behind his own words. I forget that the one who tells this story is Jesus himself. Jesus is the one. No one else could have done this. Jesus, the one who comes from the Father from all eternity, the one who knows the Father better than anyone else by far, is here ready to reveal to us who the Father is through this simple but very highly complex story. It's an amazing thing that Jesus gives to us, and he reveals to us who, who the Father is, but he's also revealing to we who he is. Okay, who he is. I sounded like a Canadian right there who doesn't say H's. Who he is. All right? So who he is. He's revealing himself. 
Why? Because Jesus is recorded as saying in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. I'm getting ahead of myself, but in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, when, when Jesus is being prophesied about hundreds of years before he came, and there's literally hundreds of prophecies that are in great detail. None of, the, none of this Book of Mormon silliness where they prophesy stuff that doesn't even exist, okay? I'm sorry, love you Mormons, but your book, it just doesn't cut the mustard, okay? But the reality is the Word of God, it stands powerfully uh, intact as truth because you've got where Jesus is going to be born, where he's going to live, what kind of life he's going to live, when he's going to die, how he's going to die, how he's going to rise from the dead. I mean, the prophecies are numerous, and, and no one could have ever fulfilled these prophecies, and yet Jesus fulfilled all of these prophecies. It's absolutely astounding that Jesus was able to come as revelation to us, and the way that John chapter 1 verse 1 talks about Jesus in the Greek mind is the, in the beginning was the Lagos, and the Lagos was with God, and the Lagos was God. And when the Greeks heard that, they were like, Lagos, yeah, Plato, Aristotle, we know all about the Lagos. This concept, the real, the, the, the truth, the expression, the revelation. And what they're saying is, Jesus is the one that you have not yet been introduced to. He is the Lagos. He is the Word of God. That means that He is the revelation of God. And so when you have Jesus coming, He's revealing Himself. And in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says, And the, and the woman shall have a son... And his name shall be, and we know the one his name shall be Emmanuel, but in this it has several descriptor titles. And it says this, he will be mighty God, prince of peace. And then it adds in this thing, everlasting father. A woman shall have a child who will be called not only father, that makes sense. A child grows up, if he's male, to become a father, right? A woman might grow up to become a mother. But this is called everlasting father. That means that he's not just uh, fulfilling the natural order of humanity. You grow up as a child, you become a parent. He, 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 is, he is an everlasting father. Uh, in, in Micah and in, in all these other processes, his, his origins were from of old, and yet he's born. And so Jesus was able to fulfill all this. First thing I want to say to you is this. Jesus is revealing the Father. It's obvious to us by now in this story. But Jesus is also revealing the Son of the Father, who is the Word of the Father, every time you turn a, 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 to the one scene to the next. I want you to see this. The first scene, Father had two sons. It focuses on the younger son. He demands his inheritance. He says, Dad, I'm sorry, but you're not dying quick enough. I got to have some fun without you. I don't care about you. I don't care about our culture. I don't care about anything. I just want the money and I'm out of here. And he takes off. And he goes to a distant land. We know the story. He squanders his wealth and all of that. You might ask me, well, if Jesus is revealed in the Father, I get it. But if Jesus is revealed in this knucklehead son, have you ever heard the expression knucklehead before? It's just like really duh. duh like what are you thinking how could you how could you be so sorry I was going to quote a movie how could you be so obtuse I had to look up that word when I heard that in the movie but how could you be so like thoughtless and how could Jesus somehow be represented by this brother here's what I want you to see Jesus became the prodigal for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says this. Do we have that up there? I'm going to jump ahead one scripture. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Can we hum the Jeopardy tune? Da, 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 da. Just kidding. Are, are, are we okay? It's not, it's not working? Don't worry about it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. This son was definitely a sinner. And according to scripture, Jesus who knew no sin, he never experienced sin. Never. 
He is actually taking on sin for us on the cross. He's becoming the one who's breaking the Father's heart. He's becoming the one who's taking the sins of the world on himself. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, speaking about Jesus, it says, Both the Son, the one who makes people holy, and those who are made holy are of the same family. Who are the ones who are made holy? That's y'all. That's me. That's us together, right? But who's the one who makes us holy? Jesus by the will of the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is able to make us holy through what He has accomplished for us by living a sinless life in human form and then taking an unjust uh, condemnation upon Himself because He never sinned, but, uh, but in place of our sin, taking that upon Himself, becoming an acceptable sacrifice to the beautiful holiness of God, the intense fiery holiness of God that cannot live with sin, that never lies, that never has an impure motive. And, and so here we are lost with a God unable to reach that kind of pure and holy God. And Jesus comes and takes that sin upon himself. So in a way we can say that Jesus became the prodigal for us. We can see how Jesus left his father's home, how he came to a foreign country. Right? The foreign country is coming from heaven to earth. He left his father's home. He came to a foreign country. He became a friend of sinners. Although for a different reason than the knucklehead son, right? He became a friend of sinners not to carouse with them, not to get involved in what they were doing, but to rescue them from their sins. Not to participate but to extricate from, from, from what these people had involved themselves in. And then he gave away all that his father had given him. All of the resources of heaven. Jesus laid it out for us. All of the teachings. All of the healings. All of the actions. All of the words that he gave to us. The, 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 the beautiful fulfillment of John chapter 3 verse 16. That says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So here's Jesus giving away all that his father had given to him. And just like the younger son when his money ran out, Jesus experienced rejection. He knew exile. He, he, he came in touch with true hatred, loneliness for the first time in his life. And, and after emptying himself of all that he had in heaven and experiencing all that this corrupt, sinful earth had to offer him, we see the, the, the Son of God like the son that was, that was in rebellion to God, we see the son returning, emptied of his life, back to his father. Emptied of all of, all of that he had been given, he, he, he returns back to his father. And not as a rebellious son in his case, but as a fully obedient son. And then one of the great similarities between the, 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 the wayward son, the rebellious son, and the Son of God who became sin for us, who was not ashamed to call us brothers, is that when they returned home to their father, there was a party. There was celebration. There was rejoicing. They, they, were, they were dancing and singing, and, and, and they loved that their son was home. And you know that when Jesus entered back up into heaven, there was a celebration. You did it. You did it. You're home. You're back with the Father forever in, in his presence. And it's an amazing rejoicing that went on in heaven. You know, when you read the two stories before this story, remember the, that the whole parable is three sets of stories. A lost coin that a woman had lost, very precious to her, a lost sheep that a shepherd had lost, very precious to him, and then a lost son, uh, lost to a father, very precious to him. Each of those things, when returned, each of those things, when returned, all of a sudden comes back into their possession. What does it say? There's a big party. They celebrate. The woman says to all her friends, come on, I found it, I found it, I found it, let's just have a party. And the shepherd says to all the neighbors and friends and fellow stinky shepherds, come on guys, let's have a party. We don't get much excitement around here. Let's be excited because the sheep that was lost is back. And then of course, the, the father with his son. What a celebration. And you can see the celebration in heaven. The son, Jesus, who was on a mission to bring all of the father's lost children home to the father's house, comes home to his father's house and there's a great celebration. Are you a part of that celebration? Are you celebrating the plan of God, the love of the Father, the, 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 the mission of the Son, Jesus, who came to become our brother, 
to, came to call us brothers and sisters to rescue us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. And let me, let me give you these verses again because they, oh, they are there. We got them. There we go. Revelation, if you didn't get the last one, it was Hebrews 2.11. Uh, Revelation 5, verse 9 and 10. It says, and they sang a new song. This is heaven. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy, speaking to Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. That means you were killed. You were, you were cut down. You were, you were pierced. All of those things that would describe his crucifixion because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. What a celebration, amen? So we see Jesus as an unseen brother here. We see him represented by, by the younger brother. To our astonishment, I have to admit to you, to my astonishment, but I believe it with all my heart. Their similarities are so clear-cut that Jesus became sin for us. And here we are uh, experiencing the one who told the story is actually the younger son in the story. Jesus identified himself with us. And then as a result of identifying himself with us, he gives us an opportunity to identify ourselves with him. That's why in Romans chapter 6 it says that we identify with Jesus in baptism. We are baptized saying that we have died to our old selves, to our sin, and we have risen up to new life in the Lord Jesus. We have identified with his cross, identified with his resurrection. We have identified ourselves with his death, identified ourselves with his life because he was willing to identify himself with us. Now, I don't know about you, but there are some times that I think that Jesus wants to say, I'm a friend of his, under his breath. Okay? I really believe that. I really believe that Jesus wants to go, um, my son right there. I don't really want to go public with this, but especially the way he's driving right now. And there's my issue, right? Again, man, hate being this open. But I know what the scripture says. It says he was not ashamed to call them brothers. And the word brother there is that whole generic catch-all for gender because we're made in the image of God, male and female. So if you want to translate it brothers and sisters, you can. But brethren just encompasses all of us. And that's a beautiful thing about the word of God um, that, that we get to be called. Here's what it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. How? You got it, didn't you? How great, I just saw somebody go, oh, I know that one. How great is the love that the Father has lavished yeah. on us yeah. that we should be called the children of God. You know one of the reasons why I don't want to be like hiding my relationship with Jesus, no matter who, what, what people think about it? Because he doesn't hide his relationship with me. One, one reason why I don't want to kind of go, oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a pastor, but please, you know, don't tell anyone and all of that. You know, uh, I, I, the one reason why I want to be wide open about it is because he's not ashamed to call me his child. He's not ashamed to call me his brother. You're, you, in your case, if you're a female, a sister and all of that. Here's what it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. <clears throat> Excuse me, Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. In other words, he gave up being God in heaven to be God in the flesh. And that's a, that's a big demotion, we would say. He's taken a huge step down. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant be made in human likeness. Talk about going low for love. Come on. How low did he go to reach down in love to us? And then it says, in being a found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. That's what it's saying. Think of it. 
The giver of life was willing to die for you and not just any old death, but death on the cross. There was no more excruciating form of, of torture that's ever been concocted by the, by the, the, the devious mind of humankind uh, than, than crucifixion. And that's the one that you chose, not only to fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies that will be pierced in his hands and feet, but to say, world, look, some of you have taken so much stuff. Not only have you taken your own sin, but you've taken the sins of the world upon you. You've been mistreated. You've been all of that. You've been uh, experienced prejudice, hatred. You, you've had people look down on you because you're this, that, or the other. You're the wrong height, or you're the wrong gender, whatever it is that you are. People look down on you. Jesus says, give it all to me. All the hatred. All the hypocrisy. Every bit of sin that has ever been committed in the, in, in, since the beginning of time, I have to die for all of it because I love all of them. I've got to be willing to do this because there's nothing that they've done that can't be forgiven. And nothing that they've done that can't, we can't say, we have paid the price for that. You don't have to be uh, guilty of that anymore because by your response to the Father coming into His arms, He then is able to envelop you without the problem of sin. And that's what Jesus did in emptying Himself and becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And then it finishes, therefore God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is this stuff amazing or what? You want to give God praise? Come on, give God praise. Time we have left. I, 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 I didn't even look at this thing. I, 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 don't, I don't believe I need even that much of the time I've used to do this, but I need a little. But I want to say this. Jesus is also not just the represent, represented by the younger son in this way, He's represented by the older son. You know, the interesting thing about these three stories is that in the first two stories, there's somebody that goes looking. And in the third story, there's no one that goes looking. Did you notice that? The woman goes looking. And then the shepherd goes looking. Who's looking for this guy? And I'm going to get more into that next week talking about his responsibility and how God was reaching out to him even by not sending a search party. But you got to know this. In this culture, guided by these scriptures that these people had, it was the older brother who was to do the searching. It was the older brother who was to do the looking. This older brother, like Adam in the Garden of Eden when Eve was being tempted, this brother stood passively by he never tried. We have no record of him trying to talk his brother out. We had no uh, record of him trying to say, hey, brother, not a good idea. And when his brother left, missing him so much that he went, he had all the resources. The father says, everything that I have is yours. So all the resources of the father, as the older son, he already had the double inheritance, but he also had everything that the father had. Everything now belonged to him. And he wasn't willing to spend a dime to get on that same road and go down and start looking for his brother. He didn't even send an investigator out. He could have sent some skilled servant, somebody, that, a hired person to say, look, I know you're good at this. Go and do it. He was totally unconcerned. He was consumed by himself. He was like that pitiful Cain in the story of Cain and Abel. When, when God says to Cain, where's your brother? And he mockingly says to God, am I my brother's keeper? And God's answer in a silent way back to him is, is, a, is a very loud yes. Because later on he says, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. You were responsible for your brother and you shirked that responsibility. And here we see this proud, arrogant, religious guy who's saying, look, I got all this God stuff figured out. That guy, he's got to be condemned by God anyway. I'm not going to lift a finger to go and look for him. And he just lets him go. And yet, coming into this story by telling the story is the true older brother who said in Luke chapter 19 verse 10 for the son of man speaking of, of himself came to seek and to save the lost you see when those people were hearing him they were recognizing you know what we're not willing to go look for our brother and we know by law by culture by familial bond we should be doing this and yet here's what we recognize Jesus is the true older brother 
who is not only reaching out to the younger, wayward, rebellious son, but is here leaving the party to run out to the religious, moralist son and say, you know what, I'm going to leave the place that I am. And so you've got Jesus coming to seek and save the lost. It's the storyteller that is not only revealing uh, stories about other individuals, but about himself, because you can see Jesus rightfully in the role of the true older brother, again, the one who is not ashamed to call us brothers, uh, to call us uh, brothers and sisters. And so the forgiveness and the restoration of the younger son came at great expense. Do you know what that, that younger, that older brother said? Hey, don't give him a goat. Don't give him a party. Do you know there was a lot more he was upset about? Because when the, when the father welcomed back the younger son, he didn't just say any word. He said the Hebrew word that was translated all the time, the way the Hebrews translate that Hebrew word into Greek. And in every other case where they took this word, they translated it the same way it was translated here into the Greek. When the father welcomed the son back, he said, I welcome you in shalom. Amen. I welcome you in peace. And, this, and the older son knew what that meant. You should be beating him, imprisoning him. You should be rejecting him. If you welcome him in peace, that means you're restoring him as a son. I get it. He's getting a robe like a son. He's getting a ring like a son. He's getting sandals like a son. He's getting shalom like a son. He's being greeted in peace. Here's what's going to happen. I know what you're going to do. You're going to take from what is left. You're going to take from what is left, which is all mine. And you're going to give it again to this younger son. Do you know what the amazing thing is about grace? It never runs out. It never stops giving. No matter how much you take from grace, grace has more to give. No matter how much you abuse grace, grace has much more to give. Somebody says, well, the scripture says that there's a time that grace runs out. No, there's never a time that grace runs out. There's a time that your time might run out. There's a time that you might decide in the end, this is my final decision. I don't want the grace of God. At that point, you are permanently lost. But until then, the grace of God is there. God is reaching out. I've seen God reach out to the most defiant people against him, continually reaching out to them, saying, I still love you. I still am reaching out to you. I've seen it with atheists. I've, I've heard stories about them that somebody, even Christopher Hitchens, just before he died, was taking a road trip across the country and a friend of his was reading to him the Gospel of John. And so what I know in that is that the Lord never stops reaching out to people. He always is going to say, grace is here for you. Grace is here for you. If it runs out for you, it's because you've determined it's going to, I don't want it. Thank you very much. Or, or no thank you. I just don't want it. And the reality is, is that we do want well, without grace, but it's not because God stopped giving. Can you say amen? So we have a clear picture of Jesus, not only as the older son or the younger son who became sin for us, but as the true older brother who was willing to pay any cost. That brother wasn't willing to give his earthly inheritance. Jesus gave everything of heaven, everything of his life. He was willing to search. He says, I've come to seek and to save the lost. And then lastly, I want to say this. When Jesus was mocked and ridiculed by those religious leaders, they literally said, he eats with sinners. He can't be good. He's associating with those who are not obeying the ceremonial laws of Israel, as we interpret them, by the way. All right? Because a lot of times he was saying, right law, wrong interpretation, right? And they were getting so upset with him. But Jesus was going to the people who were, who were, who were ostracized. Who, who, they, they didn't like church people any longer. They didn't like hanging out with them. They're too religious and moralistic and all of that. And they're like, hey, I, I've heard it. Don't want to get around. And Jesus was penetrating his love into their world and, and reaching out to them. And, and so you've got Jesus. When, he, when they said, you know what? He eats with sinners. You know what his response is? Yeah, you're right. I eat with sinners. And then let me tell you about a, a, a man. I want to tell you about a man who also eats with sinners. He tells about a father who welcomes a sinful son home right. to a meal, to a feast, yeah. and sits down with him and eats with him. But then to every one of the religious people's shock around them, he exposes the older brother yeah. as a religious hypocrite, as somebody who says, I've done everything right, I've obeyed everything that you've told me to do. 
And yet even while he was saying, I've done everything right, he was proving all the things that he was doing wrong. Even when he said, I've obeyed you in every way, he was disobeying him because he was asking him to come in and celebrate the return of his brother. So he was revealing himself. All of us are sinners. All of us are sinners. And we need to remember that. That's what knocks down barriers between us. Elitist stuff. The people in the city are not getting along with the people in the country. The people with high education are not getting along with people of low education. We're all sinners. We're all hypocrites. And the grace of God is available to all of us. Can you say amen? amen? And so here you've got Jesus coming and revealing himself by saying, you know what? I eat with sinners. You're right. Watch me do it. So let me tell you about a man who eats with sinners. And that man that he talked about that ate with a sinner who was the younger son and the older son was called the father. He said, I'm going to tell you about a story of a father and two sons. This is the same Jesus. Put up these John scriptures if you would. This is the same Jesus who said, I and the father are one. The same thing who said, everything I have learned from the father I've made known to you. John 15, whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Whatever the Father does, the Son does. See, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And again, that scripture in Isaiah 9, he is the everlasting Father. Jesus is the unseen brother, but he's also the unseen Father. He's the brother that, that left, who, who, who became sin for us. He's the true elder brother who should have searched for his younger brother. But he's also the very father in the story that is being revealed because Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. We have here a clear affirmation of Jesus' identity, of his divinity, that he reconciles sinners in a relationship. He says to them, you accuse me of sitting and eating with sinners, but it's much worse than that. I sit down and eat with sinners, but I also run down the road and I, and I, and I, I, I lay my, I, 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 I kind of, pummel them with my, my hugs and my kisses. If you think sitting with them is, is watch what I do when they return. Watch how I, I kiss them and hug them and embrace them. He says, you got a problem with how I'm treating sinners. That's your problem, not my problem. Because even while you are, uh, uh, while you are ridiculing me for welcoming my son back, I'm leaving the party and I'm coming out to you. In Ezekiel chapter 34, and I don't know why my voice is, is leaving, except for it can only mean one thing. It means time to stop. All right? But, uh, but, but you know, in, in, uh, in Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 11 and verse 12, God says this, I myself will search for my sheep. I'll bring them back. I'll bind up their wounds. I'll feed those that are weak. I'll heal those that are sick. I'll bind up their injuries. And here we have Jesus telling this story. And he's fulfilling that very passage of scripture that every one of those religious leaders knew. But he's not only fulfilling that passage of scripture. They were all too familiar with the great psalmist David, King David, who by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit gave these words to us, put to whatever tune that we don't know what it is today. But that beautiful song in the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Makes me lie down in green pastures, leaves me beside still waters, restores my soul, guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, you cover me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. You, you, I, 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 don't, I think I might miss one, but um, you lead me into your... Oh, I was going so good. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Uh, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And when Jesus was giving this story about the sheep and the shepherd, and was giving this story about the Father, he was revealing himself in every single layer of this story. As the Son who became sin for us, as the true older brother who, who, who should have come to our rescue, and in his case he did come to our rescue, but also as the Father, as the one who comes and wraps us in his arms and says, you know what? I'm going to make it all better. I'm going to take care of all the... I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm going to use the language of a dad and of a, of a, of a granddad. I'm going to make the owies all better. I'm going to make the boo-boos all better. I'm going to heal all the hurts. 
I'm going to pick you up when you fall down. I'm going to get you back up on your feet. In fact, I'm going to teach you how to walk. And when I'm done teaching you how to walk, I'm going to teach you how to run. And then after I teach you how to run, I'm going to teach you how to interact with other people. This is what God's been socially and spiritually doing in my life is what he's been socially and spiritually doing in your life. It's a beautiful thing to see this most beautiful masterpiece of literature. All of these layers that we have here. All these beautiful revelation. And it's all for one reason and one reason only. God is crazy about you. He'd rather die than live without you. He'll do whatever it takes to be with you. He doesn't just want to be with you in heaven. He wants to be with you on Sunday. He wants to be with you on Monday. He wants to be with you in the morning. He wants to be with you in the afternoon. You say, well, I'll never get any work done. He wants to go to work with you. I'll never ever get any study done. He wants to be there when you're studying. You say, well, what happens if I sin? This is one of the boldest statements he can make from the word of God. He'll be there when you sin and he'll still be loving you in the sin, trying to get you to know that he wants to forgive you and restore you and lift you up out of that sin. One of the greatest things in the world is to see the presence of God when you're, when you're in that sin. You go, well, then God can't dwell in, in the presence of sin. Well, that's true in a very eternal state. There's no way that we can mar heaven by bringing sin up there. That's why Jesus had to die for it. But remember this. He's on a rescue mission. He's willing to get down and get dirty. He's willing to come into our mess and lift us out of the mess. Why? Because he wants to get dirty? No. He doesn't want to get dirty. He wants to clean you up. He wants to dust you off. He wants to pick you up. He wants to wrap you in his arms and teach you everything that he has because he's a good good father. How do I know that? Is it a fairy tale I'm believing? No, because a man named Jesus gave us a story about a loving father who had two sons and I'm both of those sons and he loves me regardless of whether I'm the sinful one in this way or the sinful one in that way. And he loves me into relationship. Can you say amen to God? Can you just say amen to God? Come on, go, feel free to do that. I know it's welling up in us. Um, Father, I, I want to I shout, but then I want to be with you in, in still moments. And in those still moments, I don't want to not recognize your presence. Lord, there's sometimes that you want to watch a ball game with me, and there's sometimes you want me to turn a ball game off. There are sometimes that you want to catch the news with me and help me to process it. There's other times that you want me to just not, not even be in any way distracted by just being with you eye to eye, listening to your voice. God, when I'm done shouting and dancing, help me to, help me to live with you in the quiet and in the, just the day-to-day footsteps. Please, God. Please, God. Don't let me ever, I, I know I have been, but I love that revelation that says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, listens to my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and sit down with them and we'll have, we'll have dinner, we'll have lunch, we'll have breakfast. We'll just hang out together. And I know you said that to your church and I just don't want that to be my life. I don't want this to be my church family's life, my biological family's life. I just want you to take us into your presence. We miss so much joy, so much celebration, so much revelation by not willing to be in your presence at the table with our family and, and, and then just sitting with you, just the two of us. And I just pray, Lord, that you would bring us into a place where there be no impediment to the receiving of your love. I, I just want to continually feel your arms around me. I, I want to continually like, be kissed by you, Father. I want to recognize your kisses in, in material blessings. I want to recognize your kisses in just little words from you, little jokes that we would share together, just funny, humorous stuff. I don't want there to be any older brother in me. I don't want there to be any younger brother in me. But I thank you, Lord, 
that you love us so much. God, I just pray that we would, like Paul says, that we would have the eyes of our hearts open so we would know how deep and wide and high is your love. I want to swim in your love and I want to do it as a priest, but also as a ruler. You said that by your blood you made us a kingdom and priests. You, you made us to sit at your feet and worship you, but you also made us to get up and do something for you, Lord. And, and I just pray, God, that I would just live my life being with you and doing something with you. I just want to be active when I should be active, and I just want to be still when I should be still. And I want that for my sisters and my brothers. God, please, by your Holy Spirit, don't let us sit on the sidelines of, a, of an intimate relationship with you. Please bring us into your word, into prayer. Please bring us into your presence, God, into fellowship, Lord, with you and with your family. Everything that you have for us, God, on a mission for you to reach the lost, God, those who are not yet found, God, please help us to fight and walk with you there. Sometimes we're not with you because we're at home when we should be out in the world doing what you're doing, God. And I just pray, Lord, I want to, I, I know that the word says that we're filled with the Spirit, but the same word says keep in step with the Spirit. And I just want, I, I want to, I want every step of mine to be your step, God. I want every, every thought, every look. I know you'll love me until all of that happens and you'll never give up on me. You'll never stop loving me. I know that. But I, I just know that there's so much love that I, I, just, I just have to I just have to not ignore you, God. You love me too much. You've paid too high a price for me to just be consumed with myself and my own you know, career for me being involved in the mechanics of ministry or whatever. God, I just pray that Lord, you paid so high a price for me. I just want to live in your will, live in your kingdom. And I just pray that for my brothers. I pray that, God, that you would do this for young men and old men, God, young women and old women, God, in our place, God. In Jesus' name, God. Please, please, Lord. And 